Welcome to the podcast at DC. My name is David Yoakum. I'm the director of the lab at DC, and it is my pleasure to have Derek Hira with us today, an associate professor at American University in the School of Public Affairs. Professor Hydra is a sociologist by training and experience who's done a lot of really great work on the processes of neighborhood change and an emphasis on dynamics related to housing and urban politics and race in particular. And what we're going to be talking about today is this most recent book from 2017, Race, Class, and Politics in the Cappuccino City, an ethnographic investigation of the redevelopment of the Shaw and U Street neighborhood. As just a little bit more context, you've probably seen some of his work. He's been widely published. He's had a lot of his research covered by the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, C-SPAN, and elsewhere. And not only is the sort of person doing research on this, He's also someone who's been in the trench in the policy space. And so he's been the board chair of the Alexandria Redevelopment and Housing Authority, Alexandria Planning Commissioner, and an Obama appointee on the U.S. Small Business Administration's Council on Underserved Communities. You also ran for Congress in 2014. So with that, Professor Hydra, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I think maybe just to open it off right off the bat, your title on your book has the kind of imagery of a cappuccino city. Unpack that for us. Yeah, the, the, the surface of the cappuccino is really a metaphor for 21st century urban development dynamics and it, their implications. And so for D.C., it's quite fitting because D.C. used to be known as Chocolate City. It was known as Chocolate City because of the black majority, but it was also known as Chocolate City because of its black political empowerment. Uh, Marion Barry and, and others got power away from the federal government and instituted home rule in 1973. And African-Americans at that time were trying to show the nation and the world that African-Americans could run the nation's capital. Uh, so, you know, so we had this chocolate city, which had a black majority. But in the 2000s, we had a significant influx of young white millennials. Between 2000 and 2010, the city had a 5.2 population increase, and the majority of them, over 50,000, were young white millennials. So the young white millennials are the foamed milk of the cappuccino that are being poured into the espresso. And with a cappuccino, the whiteness tends to center and coalesce around the middle. And most of the young white millennials who are moving in want to live downtown, uh, or they want to live in neighborhoods that are just on the periphery of downtown. And so they're moving into low-income black areas that are just outside of Washington, D.C.'s central business district. And that is causing the gentrification uh, and displacement of long-term black residents who are then moving out to the periphery of the city and even into the inner suburbs. And so, again, the development dynamics and the patterns of redevelopment really sort of look similarly to the surface of a cappuccino. And describing sort of the, literally the color. Right. There was the other component that you talked about in the book that seems important to me here around the, the price part yeah. of the metaphor yeah, yeah. as well. So, you know, you go to Starbucks today and you get an espresso, it's, it's two bucks. You add the white foam milk to make the cappuccino and the prices go up to four to five bucks uh, for that drink. And the median home values in Washington, D.C. In, in 2000 were about 200000 uh, by 2010, with the influx of the white millennials, property values have significantly escalated, and where the median home price is about 450000 So again, uh, you, when you add the millennials and also their preferences, uh, property values go up, and they go up similarly to the price of the cappuccino versus the espresso. Right. Well, so why did this suddenly happen? I mean, I think what 
you know, looking back at the last 50 years, seeing suburban sprawl and the sort of imagery of people wanting to move outside of the city, now it's almost going in reverse. What do we know about why that's happening? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting where for, you know, 40, 50 years, we had an out-migration of affluent people from the city out to the suburbs. And with the uh, millennial population, they maybe grew up in the suburbs and the grass is always greener on the other side or somewhere else. And now they have a preference to be in the central city. Uh, so you see places like New York, Chicago um, and, and Washington, D.C. have an influx in its population. Uh, and I think that there are multiple reasons. One, uh, crime in the last 20 years in these city centers has been declining. Uh, you also have investments that were made by the federal government to knock down uh, distressed public housing high rises with the Hope Six. So, you know, over $6 billion was invested in central city neighborhoods. Uh, over about a 10 to 15 year period. So some of the federal policies uh, relate to it, but also cities have invested some of their own money to develop downtowns or the neighborhoods just on the periphery of the downtown. So I think it's, it's a combination of a changing preferences by uh, a young cohort who wanna live now in cities, but also the cities themselves have upgraded with their own resources through policy mechanisms, but they've also gotten an influx of money from the federal government to redevelop some of the distressed neighborhoods that now uh, young white millennials are, are wanting to live in. Right. So as everyone's, as this different kind of cohort of individuals are moving into the district then, is this what we mean by gentrification? And I ask it that way just to say this is a term that, of course, gets thrown around a lot in kind of casual conversation. But as a sociologist, there's a, there's a precise meaning to this. Yeah, what I mean, is gentrification? Yeah, gen gentrification is when uh, an upper-income population moves into a low-income space. Uh, and often when that happens, property values rise and there can be some displacement uh, from the low-income individuals who, who can't afford uh, to live in the community anymore. But actually what we're seeing is that the mobility of rates of low-income people in a gentrified or redeveloped community versus ones that are uh, stable and not redeveloping or, or staying stagnant are, are pretty much equivalent. Um, so low-income people just live in precarious housing situations, and they have a high turnover rate in, in neighborhoods. So it's very hard to pinpoint that gentrification is associated with displacement, though when we say gentrification, most people instantly think of displacement. They also think of gentrification in terms of racial lines, um, and they think of a low-income minority neighborhood being infiltrated with upper-income whites. And, and that's what gentrification tends to look like in the United States, but the the original definition of gentrification doesn't have race as part of uh, the, the um, definition. It's really more based on class. But because we have such whopping wealth disparities and income disparities on racial lines in the United States, uh, gentrification usually means a racial turnover. Right. Well, stepping back a little bit, why do a lot of people think of gentrification as a negative, as a thing that has bad effects on communities. And I guess another way of kind of coming at this is that there are some theorizing around the benefits of more mixed income communities. What are the kind of working theories that people have for why mixed communities in terms of income or race or both are better, more advantageous, the ones that are more homogenous? Yeah, I think before we talk about the positive or negative 
uh, implications of a mixed income, mixed race community, we need to take a step back and sort of look at, you know, why are we even talking about mixed income? And I think part of the reason we are is because from 1970 to 1990, we had a significant increase of neighborhoods that were concentrated in poverty. And when I say poverty concentration, I'm talking about neighborhoods where 40% of the population was at or under the poverty level. In these neighborhoods, we have something called neighborhood effects, where we have elevated rates of school dropout, teen pregnancy, single family homes, um, uh, you know, um, health, uh, poor health outcomes beyond what we would predict by knowing the individual attributes of the people who live in the community. So there's some kind of neighborhood effect that is leading to ill outcomes and decreasing the life chances of the people who live there. So as a country, we decided we should try to invest in these high concentrated poverty pockets and get redevelopment so that we, we get the threshold of poverty at 30% or 20%. And when you start to lower the poverty rates in communities, you see these ill uh, outcomes start to dissipate. Hmm. Um, so, but many of the benefits of mixed income, mixed race communities were based on social interactions occurring among the low income population, the middle income population, and the upper income population. Uh, so you would see upper income people acting as role models and mentoring. You'd see low income and, and middle and upper income people working together in a political coalition to try to get more resources, maybe from the city government into their neighborhood. You would see the families of all these uh, different income groups sending their kids to the same public schools. But what you tend to see in the mixed income, mixed race neighborhoods in D.C. and elsewhere is you don't have this cross-race, cross-class social interactions. You really have a micro-level segregation. Uh, and if these populations within communities are not interacting with one another, many of the mechanisms and benefits that we hypothesized about uh, may not come to fruition. And that's, I think that's worth unpacking at this point, because to my mind, this is one of the most striking things about your book to me, is that even where we have places at a community level that you know, kind of statistically, they have a mix of different races, different incomes. That doesn't necessarily mean those individuals are interacting with each other. And so it's kind of not enough to have a mix of individuals. There needs to be some kind of other social grease or something happening to get people talking together. What do we know about why this kind of micro segregation occurs? I mean, a lot of it has to do just with the racism, discrimination, mistrust, that we have built up over centuries in our country. Uh, some of it also has to do with the wealth and income inequalities that we have along racial lines. And so, you know, we've been such a segregated country for so long in the 20th century that in the 21st century, when we start to see these burgeoning mixed race, mixed income communities, we started, there was the assumption that if people just lived next to one another, that they would start to trust one another, that they would talk to one another, that they would work with one another. And it sort of forgot about this whole history of discrimination and mistrust uh, that has been built up over time in our country uh, because of, of racial discrimination. I think that when we have mixed income and mixed race communities, we have to do things to grease the wheels of social integration. We have to sort of try to do things that minimize the mistrust and build social cohesion 
in these communities. And we also we often for in city governments and federal governments sort of fund the bricks and mortars of creating a mixed income community. That is, they subsidize upper income housing and lower income housing, but they don't do much to build social bridges among the distinct populations in these places. And what I sort of advocate at the end of my book is that uh, city and also federal and the federal government should really think about how to build social cohesion by building nonprofits that have the mission to try to bring people together across difference in the gentrified spaces in their cities. Have you seen really good examples of that anywhere? No. <laughs> I wish I wish I, I had... Uh, but I, I do see that uh, some community organizations, I mean, I've worked with 1DC, and that's Organizing Neighborhood Equity. They've been in the Shaw U Street area for, uh, for decades. Uh, their membership and also their leadership, it, when I started working with them, was primarily African-American. Um, but as the Shaw U Street area gentrified, they brought in a lot of newcomers and, and white millennials who believed in the social mission of equitable development. Um, so, you know, they're an organization that is starting to uh, broaden its diversity and membership base to include the diverse population in that community. But they've never been funded directly to try to build social cohesion among distinct populations. That sort of just happened naturally. But it would be nice to see neighborhood organizations that had the mission of, of trying to get people to work together. But you often don't see foundations or city governments or the federal government funding organizations for that specific purpose. There are brick-and-mortar government-sponsored facilities, you would think, that could do this. Libraries, schools, public parks, or, you know, some of them like schools. Literally, students are being forced together. It seems like that's still not enough, potentially. Yeah, I think schools is a tough one because we kind of made this assumption that when the neighborhood changed, that the schools would change. But in the Shaw U Street area, which, you know, again, in the 80s was 80% African-American. Now it's 30% African-American. It's the, the majority of the population is white at, at 53%. But the demographics of the schools, the schools in the community are still 80% students of color. So the neighborhood has changed racially, but yet the school population has not. So sometimes uh, we again we assume uh, that redevelopment will lead to a, uh, of a neighborhood will lead to the changing structure of the schools within it, and that's kind of a misnomer because now there's school choice. Now there are charter schools. There have always been private schools, and so uh, individuals and families have choices for schools that are outside of the neighborhood. So sometimes the neighborhood will change, but the schools within it don't. Uh, so I think that the schools are a potential place uh, to bring people together that might not be the ideal place because people are choosing schools outside of their neighborhoods. In countries that don't have our unique racial history, London, say, experiencing gentrification of the income sort, do you see the same micro-segregation problems there? Or is this really something that's reflecting the racial dynamics more than the class yeah, dynamics? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, in a place like the UK, I mean, they uh, have a lot of social stratification along class lines. But don't forget, they also had a history of colonialization, and then they do have some racial tensions uh, there. But nonetheless, in, in our country, sort of this kind of segregation uh, is by race. But we also have a segregation by class. It's just that race and class are so tied within the United States because we have big wealth and income uh, inequality along racial lines. So in our country, it, it's really sort of thinking about how do we do class and race integration at the same time. But in our country, if we do sort of 
income integration, we likely are to do uh, racial integration at the same time. At the same time. Well, so coming back to your experience at 1DC then, where you were mentioning they have been doing things to try to diversify the mix of people participating. What are some of the concrete things that they, they did or through that experience have generated ideas of kind of what we can do? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, one of the things that they were able to do, which uh, has been tremendous, is they established the first community benefits agreement in Washington, D.C. So Progression uh, Place is, is a 200-plus unit um, uh, space on 7th Street. It also is the anchor and headquarters of the United Negro College Fund, which was out in Fairfax, now moved into the district. Um, and part of the community benefits agreement that was struck with the developer and 1DC was to do affordable uh, commercial base for some long-term uh, businesses that were in the community. And Wanda Henderson has uh, Wanda's, which is a hair shop. Uh, she was there before the development started. She had to move out uh, while they redeveloped this uh, mixed-use uh, development. But she came back and has reduced rent for five years. So she has time to sort of transition her business model to try to bring in the new aggregate income and, and cater her services to the new population that is moving around this development. So things that sort of ease the pressure for small businesses is something I think would really be helpful in gentrified communities. We often think about displacement along the residential lines, but we don't think about commercial businesses get displaced too. Their rents go up. Um, and so the community benefits agreement, again, that was struck by 1DC uh, with Chip Ellis, who is one of the development partners of Progression Place, uh, allows a business like Wanda uh, Henderson's to stay in place. Uh, so that is equitable development uh, that will allow her business to to maybe benefit from the redevelopment that's occurring there. And so that's a model that maybe can be struck by other community associations uh, in Anacostia. I mean, we have in this city, Anacostia is an early stage gentrification. There's a lot of investment going on. There hasn't been a lot of population turnover yet. But can organizations work with the development community to make sure that small businesses are able to stay in place, maybe with a community benefits agreement? Can we ensure that when the real estate values escalate, that there is still some affordable housing so some of the long-term residents are, are able to stay? Uh, that is something the city can help out with, but sometimes um, the city can only go so far. And so you get um, the, the nonprofits maybe working directly uh, with the developers to try to, to strike these agreements. And so that is something, a community benefits agreement is something you're seeing in Washington, D.C. It's been done in New York. It's also been done in L.A. Um, and that might be the new policy mechanism, or, or it's one of the policy mechanisms that community groups need to think about if they're in a situation where their community starts to redevelop. What's difficult about implementing community benefit agreements? A lot of the uh, agreements are not legally binding. So it's, it's an agreement that is struck among a nonprofit and a developer, but often the nonprofit doesn't have the legal capacity that the developer may have at his or her disposal. And so sometimes they're not legally binding. The other thing is that the development and the conditions that constrain developments can change, right? I mean, there was a community benefits agreement struck on this deal at Progression Place that took place prior to the Great Recession. Well, then we got the Great Recession. And that community benefits agreement had to be altered slightly because uh, the market conditions had changed. So just there are things outside of the control sometimes of developers and also of community groups that can change the community benefits agreements. Um, but the other part is is that what is going to hold developers' feet to the fire, and it 
it, it often is a legally binding contract, and a lot of these community benefits agreements are not always legally binding. The other part is it sometimes sidesteps the city. The city gets frustrated. Why are these community groups striking these deals with developers, and, and where's the role for the city? Um, that can also be uh, problematic. The other thing, too, is that you know, in any sort of community, there are multiple community groups. So which group gets to strike the community benefits agreement with the developer? And also, who gets to determine where the benefits are going to go throughout the community when an agreement is struck? So these are all things that need to be thought about, but also can make these community benefits agreements controversial. I want to come back to the question we were starting to tee up a little moment ago around why mixed income, mixed racial neighborhoods are something that, from a social perspective, we might want to invest in. And another way of kind of saying this is that, you know, why not just let the market do what the market does? And if it means prices are going to drive up and people are going to get displaced, that's what the market does. What we're kind of talking about here is trying to do something to, to fight back against the market, which typically when you have these situations, you're either making some sort of a social or moral argument about why this is a good idea. What do you think are the most compelling arguments in that direction? Yeah, I mean, one of the things is when you say the market, it's, it's sort of this idea that there's just, uh, you know, uh, this invisible hand of the market, that there's just all these individual choices being made, um, and that leads to the conditions that we have today. But there is no free market. The market is always structured, right? When we think about the redevelopment of communities, um, is it natural that young white millennials are just moving into the city when they used to preference maybe the suburbs? Well, the cities have changed. Uh, there's investment that is going in. We think of place of, of Washington, D.C., uh, the east downtown area where, is, where the, um, the Capital One Center is located has changed tremendously. It has changed tremendously because there were city investments and also federal government investments that undergirded the redevelopment that took place there. In a lot of the low-income African-American areas that are now gentrifying around the country, uh, there was a manipulation of the market that we put public housing there that led to concentrated poverty. And now in the 90s, we have demolished a lot, and then in the 2000s, a lot of this public housing with federal government money. Uh, so the market is constantly being manipulated. So that, that's just one thing I, I want to get on the table. The other is, why, why do we do these mixed-income, mixed-race communities? And I think, uh, one, to try to increase the life chances of low-income people. We, we have had a situation where we've concentrated poverty through political decisions, which have led to a situation where it's been very difficult for people to get out of poverty because we've concentrated it there, and we get those neighborhood effects I talked about earlier. Um, and, and also... We would want to sort of, again, maybe manipulate the market somewhat by trying to stimulate redevelopment, encourage development to come to these places that have been underserved. But how do we do it in a way that doesn't displace? We've had, we've had the old urban renewal where we raised uh, African-American neighborhoods in the 40s, 50s, and 60s to protect downtown real estate development interests. So now in the 90s, when we again raise these communities and raise the distressed public housing, how do we do it in a way that brings in investment, but then also increases the life chances of the low-income people? And in the old urban renewal, we developed place and displaced. Now, how do we develop and redevelop a place, but increase the life chances, again, of the low-income people and help develop the people in place? And so that's what, with my work, I try to do and try to help cities think about uh, and I think it's an important part of, of public policy that we want cities to be advantageous for everybody. 
and we don't want just certain groups to benefit. When we think about Washington, D.C., in the last 15 years, it has had a tremendous economic boom, but that boom hasn't been equally shared. So whites, their incomes have skyrocketed, while African-American incomes have stayed pretty much stagnant. And so with my work, I'm really interested in how do we grow the economic pie, but how do we more equally redistribute it as well? Uh, and cities have a really tough time with that. Washington, D.C., like I said, is on its strongest financial footing. It has grown tremendously. It has a, an annual budget now of $14 billion, uh, but it is still very unequal. And actually, income inequality in the last 15 years has grown as well. So how do we grow the pie more equally distribute it so that more people can benefit from economic prosperity. Those are great points. And I'd, I'd encourage people to listen. The, the first part of your book really talks a lot about those economic investments from tax dollars that have come in. Another great book, um, Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law, talks about a similar dynamic in how housing and subsidization of suburban sprawl and things like that. was. There was a lot of deliberate policy choices that have led to where we are right now. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the method you apply as, a, as an ethnographer. One of the ways of maybe coming into this is to, you know, you were out on, in the streets and the communities talking with lots of people over several years about all of this. I maybe invite you to say a little bit about how you approach that work. And I'm going to be curious what you're kind of hearing from people about why they, people who are long-term residents, why they think this type of gentrification is happening. I'm an ethnographer by training. And, and what that really means is I do participatory action research. So I don't just sort of look at census statistics um, and say, oh, well, you know, this neighborhood has changed and try to figure out why it's changed. I actually go into the neighborhood. Uh, I spent a year in Shaw U Street as a community organizer for 1DC, which is organizing neighborhood equity, and I interview people. So I learn from residents about what they think is related to the redevelopment of their community and also what they think are the consequences. So when I talk about the findings of my study, I'm really assessing what I'm hearing from people on the ground that live in the community space. So I spent over five years in the Shaw U Street area just hanging out. I, like I said, I worked for one year as a community organizer, but I also just played basketball at the Kennedy Rec Center. I would go to bars. I would go to neighborhood block club groups and meetings. Uh, I would go to the ANC meetings, and I would just spend time in many different parts of the community to understand how different people and different factions were, were perceiving the redevelopment. How do the people in the community perceive the redevelopment that has, has taken place? I think that you know a, a lot of people look at city policies and, and how they relate. They also look at the, the preferences of uh, the newcomers, and they look at how the newcomers are organizing to try to get resources or to try to have their preferences manifest themselves within the built and social environment. I think uh, those are a lot of the things that people talk about. But with my book, I also do something called the vertical ethnography, where I look at what's happening on the ground in communities, but I try to contextualize that by understanding dynamics that originate outside of the community, like city policies, like federal policies, also the way in which DC fits into the global economy, uh, and understanding the business decisions of multinational organizations that are within DC, but also within the DC region outside or within the Beltway, uh, because the decisions that they make and how their businesses are growing uh, affect 
uh, places like Shaw U Street. Many of the white millennials who are living in Shaw U Street have jobs uh, by a lot of these multinational companies, right? So why are they growing and, and what are their choices and how do the choices that they're making relate to their customer base, which is not just the Washington DC government, but might be governments around the world. Yeah. Uh, so really connecting the global to the local. And that's part of the vertical ethnography. Tell me what you think about this. In hearing your descriptions of how you approach the ethnographic work, it's almost a window into thinking about, at a very personal level, how to get around some of the problems of microsegregation. And what I mean by this is, if you're someone who moves into a neighborhood and everyone around you is of a different age or a different race, and you're confronted with this sort of hill to go up to of how do I start engaging with people very different from me? I imagine a lot of people are maybe just reserved or nervous about doing that. How do you, like, what's the experience like going into somewhere where, like, what do people think of you when yeah, you come in yeah. like this? So I don't know if all the listeners out there uh, know, but I'm white, right? And I'm um, 40, what, 44 now? Uh, uh, really 24. So when I play basketball, I try to pretend that I'm, I'm 24. But I think that uh, being someone who's white, who tries to engage and work with African-American communities. I mean, I did research in, in Harlem, in New York City, also Bronzeville on the south side of Chicago. Um, and now Shaw U Street, which is, again, one of the most historic black communities in the country. Yeah, I'm sort of part of trying to understand how do we break up micro-level segregation? Because I try to embed myself within black spaces, white spaces, Hispanic spaces. I mean, uh, spaces in Shaw U Street that are straight, spaces that are dominated by gay people, right? By all the different groups. Uh, how do I talk with low-income residents in a subsidized unit, but then talk to a developer who is investing millions and millions of dollars to redevelop it, right? I try to talk to all of these different factions. And I just try to, you know, I'm just listening to try to hear how each of these groups views the community development process. But I think that, you know, trying to understand how a white person can engage within a black space and do it in a way that is not offensive and also do it in a way that is productive and actually maybe tries to help low-income people is kind of what I try to do. And I think maybe there are some lessons in terms of the way that I do my ethnography that could help newcomers who move into these black spaces. And one of the things I try to do is educate myself about the history. I don't go into a neighborhood without really understanding what was the neighborhood's past and how did it get to the way that it is. I think there are many uh, young white millennials who move into Shaw U Street but don't understand that that was the black political core. I mean, the reason we have home rule in Washington, D.C. is part because Walter Fauntroy advocated and Marion Barry and others, but they organized within the Shaw U Street area and then tried to change the structure of the federal government, which would then change the structure of D.C.'s local government. But to understand why we have home rule in Washington, D.C., you have to understand the political history of a place like Shaw U Street. And so when Shaw U Street starts to gentrify, it is sometimes it is hurtful to long-term African-American residents because that was the black space that got political power away from the federal government. So, you know, I understood that as I walked into this space, but there are many white millennials that don't understand that, right? And, and so I think there's something about knowing the history of the communities uh, that are changing that's important for newcomers, and having that understanding helps them interact uh, a little bit better with the long-term residents, or at least understand the circumstances that they are facing. And so 
that's what I try to do with my ethnography. But also know that because we've had such, um, we've had racial discrimination and mistrust, I never assume that, you know, people are going to be accepting of me, that I've got to build their trust. And to build trust takes time. And sometimes I'll come into a community and try to talk with people and say, I don't want to talk with you. Get out of here. But I don't get offended by that. I never view that as reverse racism. I say my job is to gain the trust of this person. And I know that that sometimes takes time. When I had that relationship with 1DC and I worked with them as a community organizer for a year, it took me three months of meeting with the staff and the leadership and the membership base before they decided to take me under their wing. And, you know, sometimes when a newcomer moves into a community, and they get rejected by the current population, again, they just look at that as reverse racism and they just go back into their corner, which perpetuates the micro-level segregation. And so having newcomers try to understand there might be resistance, but once you sort of build a relationship over time and work on that, then the community opens up and you more likely can have a dialogue across these differences. So that's what I try to do with my ethnography. Um, and I hope that you know some of those lessons translate to newcomers who move into transitioning neighborhoods in the district and to other places in the U.S. Do you think there are similar lessons or advice for the long-term residents on how they can approach newcomers coming in? So that I mean, I assume the burden here isn't totally right. one-sided. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, um, I think that uh, long-term residents need to think about what are the ways that they can work with with the newcomers to to benefit themselves right and and often they'll long-term residents will just have such a mistrust based on a history of discrimination and racism i mean that mistrust is there for a reason but thinking about there are some um you know newcomers who come into a community that really want to come in and be a part of the community want to be part of the diversity and actually want to do things that uh, actually uplifts long-term residents in some kind of way. And I think that, you know, we talked a little bit about 1DC and how 1DC's uh, membership base has diversified. Well, it's diversified with white liberals who really believe in equitable development that actually really want to organize with long-term residents to get progressive policies in place uh, that actually help benefit uh, the lives of long-term residents. So I think there are a subset of newcomers that have those ideas about benefiting long-term residents. And long-term residents shouldn't just sort of view these uh, newcomers as, as colonizers that really just want to displace them. There are some that, that want to come in and really want to work with the long-term residents to improve the community for everybody. And I think long-term residents need to be open to that possibility. Well, last question. Looking forward, you can answer this in couple of different ways, but curious what you think is on the horizon or should be. And this could be either things you think the district should be doing, or maybe if you want to talk about your own personal work you're doing in the future, what should we be looking and thinking about in the months and years to come? Well, I think with the, with the district, I mean, I think that the gentrification is, is going to persist. Um, you know, I, I talked a little bit about uh, the, the racial dividing line used to be Rock Creek Park, and, and then it moved east to 16th Street, then to 7th Street, then to North Capitol. Um, and now the racial dividing line is really the Anacostia River. And we do see investments going into uh, Anacostia. And so how is the city going to learn from the lessons of the redevelopment of Shaw U Street, Columbia Heights, Petworth, of the H Street corridor, and try to do more equitable development so that uh, people in Ward 7 and 8, as the redevelopment occurs, don't get displaced? 
that there is a spot for long-term residents and there is a way that we can work together to bring in investments to an underserved area uh, without massive displacement. And I think the city needs to think about doubling down on that affordable housing trust fund and having it go from a million to 200 million. But we got to do more than just the bricks and mortars of affordable housing. We have to minimize things like political and cultural displacement. We've got to grease the wheels of social integration. Uh, so the city has to invest in, in those things as well. Um, but I think, you know, stepping back from Washington, D.C. and just kind of looking at the nation, I mean, we're in a unique politically uh, historic moment where... You know, we had the election of the first black president. It looked like we were moving towards a post-racial society. Uh, and then we get the election of Donald Trump, who is really utilizing the politics of hate uh, to divide. Um, and how do we work through that, right? How do, how do cities kind of bring people together when the national political discourse is one of division? I think that's really something that city officials and city council members and mayors really need to, to think about. Um, you know, we have not had much political instability in cities since the 1960s. Yes, we had a riot in Cincinnati in the 2000s and we had the LA riots, but now we've had three riots post 2010 in Ferguson, uh, in Baltimore, and in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. Uh, and so now we really need to think about how do we minimize the tensions in our cities so that we don't have riots um, moving forward in the 21st century. So I really think we've got to go beyond just kind of thinking about police brutality. We have to think about how the policies that we've implemented in the 90s have stimulated gentrification. We need to think about how coming off the Great Recession, the Great Recession disproportionately hurt people of color because they were the ones with the subprime mortgages disproportionately and they were the ones that got hurt by the foreclosures. Coming out of the Great Recession, we've had widening wealth and income gaps along racial lines. These things are the undercurrents of the riots. So how do we address racial and wealth income inequality in a context of political divide at the national level? Uh, I think it's something that, again, city administrations and city governments really need to think about uh, so that we minimize tensions uh, at this moment. Well, Professor Hyres, it's been a real pleasure. Again, this is Derek Hydra, American University and recent author of Race, Class, and Politics in the Cappuccino City. Thank you.